How is everybody doing today? Welcome to This Week in Liberpods installment number nine. It's been not as long as the last break. In fact, technically, I'm recording this the day after the last one released, so I can get it done and out and ready. And hopefully that'll help me keep uh, keep getting these things together early. Anyways, we've got, as always, five fantastic new libertarian podcasts for you to check out. Some you know, some you may not. But if you don't know, go and spread the word about This Week in Liberpods to those around you and say, Hey, you don't know until you know. And that's what we're here to do. We're here to tell you about the podcasts that you may not know about so you can find your next favorite. This week, we're going to start out with a fantastic Electric Liberty Land with Brian McWilliams. As he has a comedian on to talk about some of the perils of the world that we find ourselves in comedically. Fantastic episode. Let's see where they go. It's going to it's going to affect the evolution not only of comedy but just of entertainment as we know it. Having this ability and and with people going out of the way to cancel. I always felt like um, the the real problem with the the loud audience response that's happening is that comedians are doing our job. The comedian gets on stage and tells a joke, and um, some people in the audience say that joke is racist, and other people in the audience say no, it's not. And then those audience mm-hmm. members fight. And then the people who are the loudest are the people who are adamant about proving that the comedian is racist. Whereas the comedian should be mm-hmm. able to sit back and say, hey, as long as there are people defending me, you can't just subjectively project this racism thing onto me. Um, you, and yeah. the, the same goes for uh, misogyny. The same goes for punching down. You can't just subjectively right. <laughs> project that onto a comedian and say that it's true when there's a whole group of other people who are saying, saying it's not true. Um, and mm-hmm. and when, when the comedian has the audience divided like that, then I always say the comedian gets to step off stage and go to the green room and have a nice snack. And, uh, and then you guys get to fight it out. The consumers get to fight it out. Right. Now, the other side of that, it is so strange to me that audience members are obsessed with two things that comedians, that happen with comedians. Audience members are obsessed with the idea of comedians getting heckled and they're obsessed with the ideas of, mm. of bombing. Now, here's the thing. If I have a yeah. joke about race and it bombs and a group of people say that's racist and there's no one there to defend me, well, now I have a problem. <laughs> of course, now <laughs> there's a problem, but is that it's only a problem if there's nobody defending me. And instead, they want to create a world yeah. where the defenders don't exist and then push cancel culture on us. And it's like, no, you can't cancel somebody that has defenders. Right. Well, well you're seeing that play out almost in real time uh, yeah. with Dave Chappelle. And, and you know, I've been watching Bill Burr's special, nor read reviews on it yet. But Chappelle, you know, it, it, almost immediately the special comes out. The media gets their, a sneak preview of it, and on Rotten Tomatoes, you know, they use just the worst reviews they can <laughs> find. Now, I had seen far more reviews, but they custom picked. There were like six six yeah. reviews up there, all giving it just panning it as punching down of uh, of, of have Dave Chappelle finally jumped ship. You know, Dave Chappelle's time has passed. He's a uh, a relic of a bygone era. This man who had created comedy that was yeah. groundbreaking that took on race in a hilarious fashion, put things on its head. And uh, and as I said, oftentimes would create conversation around it or come at you from a way. And you and I've discussed this, wherein you're surprised, you know, you don't see the punchline right. coming uh, instead of this kind of you know, way comedy exists in the current era of, you know, daily show style. Ah, I see the punchline mm-hmm. when the first word. But you see that uh, Rotten Tomatoes picks these six interviews or six reviews, 0% rating for a whole, a whole week, 0%. 
Then they finally allow the uh, customer ratings or the, uh, you know, the common man to weigh in shoots up 99%. So the audience reaction, 99% positive. Every, you know, everybody on there just defending the living shit out of Chappelle versus the woke culture reviews. And to a larger extent, you know, the tech I guess the tech company uh, trying to push the quote woke. Uh, yeah, trying to social and socially engineer that. Trying to socially engineer right. a response to comedy, and that's that's what as scientists mm-hmm. we hate <laughs> because we're like, no, 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 yeah. no. I did the testing, and I know what the reaction is. You can't just <laughs> right. pretend that the reaction isn't the reaction because you feel like it shouldn't be, um, and which is no. ultimately the the hard thing that's happening on the left that is turning people off, which is when they don't get the results Mm. they want, they try to socially engineer it so that it works in their favor anyway. And um, the thing that hardcore left leftist people hate about stand-up comics is that uh, they tell us all the time that we, the comedians, don't get to decide what's funny. The audience decides. And then as soon as the audience decides it's funny, and the leftist doesn't like it, the leftist goes, well, the audience doesn't matter. And let me tell you why you're wrong. And I'm like, well, who the fuck are you to decide if I don't have the power to decide? Another fantastic Electric Liberty Land there with Brian McWilliams of the Lions of Liberty. That is the podcast that actually got me started podcasting. I thought if this jackass can do this, telling stories about Rick and Morty, then clearly me with all of this equipment and my impeccable charm can go out and do it as well it has not panned out exactly as i expected i will admit at any rate let's move along we have a great segment here with the amazing jacob hornberger over at the libertarian angle remembering not so fondly the lessons learned in the publishing world after 9-11 let's see what they got the point you make about how what were we were recommending at that time is perfectly valid, but you'll recall that we got attacked just mercilessly. I mean, there were subscription cancellations coming in. What we were essentially saying after the 9-11 attacks is, this is a time for wisdom. This is a time for prudence. You know, think through what the response should be here instead of just this knee-jerk response. And boy, people were just, you know, you're weak, you love the terrorists, you hate America, because it was this this knee-jerk support of George W. Bush's attitude of wanting to wreak vengeance. And even if the vengeance is being wreaked on people that had nothing to do with the attacks, like people in Iraq, most of the people in Afghanistan, it didn't matter. That we're just going to go out there with bombs and missiles and troops, and, and we're going to wreak just unbelievable retaliation to make sure nobody ever does this again. Well, if you, if you look back at the 93 attack on the World Trade Center, uh, they handled it, U.S. officials handled it exactly like you and I were saying should be handled after the 9-11 attacks. Uh, they didn't, you know, they, they found the one of the perpetrators, a guy named Ramsey Youssef, hiding out in Pakistan. Well, they didn't invade Pakistan and kill a bunch of Pakistanis in order to capture this guy. They, they did some investigation. They realized that, that this is a criminal offense. That's what terrorism is. And they, they got into Afghanistan. They grabbed this guy. They brought him back to the United States. And at, at his hearing, it was, it was very instructive, his sentencing hearing, Yousef was filled with rage, you could tell this. 
and he didn't talk about hatred for America's freedom and values and that kind of nonsense. He pointed directly. He, he even said to the federal judge, he said, you call me a terrorist, but it's you people who are the butchers because look what you have done in the in the Middle East. And, and that was where it goes to motive. They were talking about the, the, the embargo, the sanctions against Iraq that had killed hundreds of thousands of, of Iraqi children. You recall that a few years later, um, uh, uh, UN, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Madeleine Albright, told 60 Minutes that the deaths of half a million Iraqi children, while hard, wasn't were in fact worth it. And worth it, she meant by regime change. Well, Americans may not have paid much attention to that statement, but I guarantee you people in the Middle East did. And by this time, U.S. troops were, were stationed near Mecca and Medina, which are the holiest lands in the Muslim religion. So here are these so-called infidels right near their, their holy lands. There was the unconditional military support to the Israeli government, regardless of its mistreatment of Palestinians. All of this was develop a cauldron of rage and anger. And, and we were saying this before 9-11. We were publishing articles saying, if you don't stop this interventionism, you're going to get a major attack on U.S. soil. And it, which it didn't take a rocket scientist to predict that because you had the 93 attack on the World Trade Center. You had the attacks on the USS Cole, the attacks on the, uh, the American embassies in East Africa. Uh, but, you know, and we weren't the only ones. Chalmers Johnson, uh, the famous analyst who had formerly worked for the CIA, he wrote a book called Blowback, where he said the exact same thing before 9-11. So when 9-11 hits, we, we said, look, you know, we, we let's talk about motive here. And I wrote an, an op-ed that's on our website about three weeks after 9-11 saying, is it too early to talk about foreign policy here? Well, immediately, oh, you're justifying what the terrorists did and, you know, cancel my support. And yeah, those were tough times for FFF. But what we were saying is that you have to study motive. Motive is not justification. A prosecutor in a criminal case talks to the jury about motive of the murderer. He's not justifying what the murderer did. Well, why is that important? Well, because if there had been no intervention, if there had been no sanctions on the Iraqi people killing those children, if there had not been these other interventions after the end of the Cold War, there never would have been a 9-11 attack. There wouldn't have been an invasion of Afghanistan or an invasion of, of Iraq. At least they wouldn't have had that excuse to, to do these invasions. And then even more important, by studying motive and, and analyzing it correctly, that would have meant no invasion of Afghanistan. It would have meant, well, maybe we need to stop intervening. Instead, they doubled down on their interventions. They invade um, Afghanistan. They invade Iraq saying, oh, no, the terrorist attacks have nothing to do with our interventions. They have everything to do with hatred for America's freedom and values. Well, now they generate even more anger and more rage with this 18-year war in, in Afghanistan, this war in Iraq. And so you've got terrorism over here on American soil, the, the killer at Fort Hood. Uh, I'm not going to lie. There's a lot to think about there. I don't like thinking about 9-11. It was a bad thing. Lots of bad people. I don't like to believe there's that many bad people in the world. Unfortunately, there are, and that is why Libertarian Podcasters exist, so we can spread the word of peace and prosperity throughout the land. Do I sound a little bit more excited than I probably should, considering that topic? I'll take that under advisement. Anyways, our third segment this week, we're actually going to take a look at a new one to me, Libertarian Crusaders. Uh, this is going to be another 9-11 Remembrance one because, you know, we just had that. 
So let's see how their perspective is on this. So conditioned in this idea of, well, um, no, that's a privilege. Like, you want to get on that flight, or you want to get in your car, or you want to do this, or you want to do that. That's a privilege. And so you just, uh, you, you know, agreed to that right. when you were it's born or something. Contract, man. Right. You signed in blood somewhere, I'm sure. I mean, these, <laughs> these airports aren't run by governments anyways, right? I mean, they're run by private interests. It's like saying Netflix is a, it's a privilege. Or it's like, um, we're gonna, we'll get into it in a second. with I the better. some may actually be run by the municipalities that they're in. I know Charlotte's is run by Charlotte government. I guess you do have, um, what, the federal airline, FAA? FAA right. Yeah, kind of be in charge of all that, unfortunately. Um, and there's some weird stuff that was going on September 11 where they were doing some kind of drills, and so all the jets were kind of out of range, coincidentally, right? It's kind of or nice confused beyond belief, right? It's like because we spend more money on defense, defense than any country in the world, added up mostly, yeah. and uh, they let these insurgents hijack airplanes and fly them into buildings. You would think when it's information is being led that there's some people who are interested in flying Cessnas uh, in planes, but they don't have a care about how to yeah, land them. That that will cause That's uh, the challenge. Sound some alarms or anything like that, um, or maybe. We're so used to, on this part of the world, with two oceans, uh, a great defensive barrier that we can't phantom anyone coming to attack us. Right. Right. And so I guess maybe our defense is kind of relaxes. We think the front is always going to be out in Europe or Japan, where all those bases are. Yeah, we didn't experience any of the suffering of World War II and rebuilding and everything. We were just back to normal right away. I mean, even yeah. Pearl Harbor wasn't, I mean, Hawaii wasn't a state. You know, it was right. a military base. Huh. So mm -hmm. when Pearl Harbor was attacked. So even then, you say, well, what about Pearl Harbor? I said, well, that predates the U.S. having anything to do with Pearl Harbor. It, like there. Midway, that was, there's nothing there. No. No. <laughs> right. The Battle of Midway, well, it's, there's nothing yeah, it's there. literally the refueling point because we can't go all the way. <laughs> uh, Jeff Dice had a great quote about 9-11. He says, uh, on 9-11, the entire U.S. national security apparatus failed. All airport security, nuclear missiles, air defense, command centers, bombers, fighter jets, aircraft carriers, destroyers, and so on, could not protect a single American from a small group, middle-class Saudi kids with box cutters and a few hours of Cessna training. And uh, so it, you know, it becomes this like, but instead of being humbled by all that, U.S. government's like, no, no, we're going to press on. Yeah, right. What were the consequences of September 11? Right, more freedoms. No. Well, I mean, you go back. It, it was either a conspiracy or a catastrophic failure. There is no third choice. You know, it's which is it? Choose, choose your poison there because they're both poison, and a lot of people died no matter which poison you choose. So. And a lot of people died all around the world, right? I mean, well, the overreaction, right? <clears throat> I mean, I would think that people would want uh, justice after that, right? People would want a response to that. Uh, I think the proper response going to Afghanistan and trying to, I guess, if ta Taliban were involved with Osama bin Laden, uh, justified. Uh, but then you have, weirdly enough, you have uh, the White House press asking them questions saying, hey, uh, the Taliban says they have Osama bin Laden. They're, they're, they'll give him up. <laughs> they say, please don't bomb us. And even during the bomb, it's like, please stop bombing us. We'll hand him over to you. Yeah. Um, it's like, you're saying this is what's the cause of this. Yeah, here he is. But of course, like the White House press were like, uh, yeah, no comment on that. Uh, this is like it's an unconditional uh, destruction, you can say, that is going Shock to be occurring. Awe, I believe was After the, the first two weeks of Afghanistan, it was pretty much, we'd taken out like a bunch of guys and that was, it, it would have been over 
at that should have been it, right? Yeah. yeah. Do you Say still we. have your playing cards, though? <laughs> right. Well, the people of Iraq suffered more for 9-11 than the people of the United States. Right. You know, the people of any other country, and they had virtually nothing to do with it. It's like uh, Canadians being involved in a terrorist attack in Europe, and they attack us in the United States, for example. And, you know, they're still here 18 years later. Right. right. It's like, uh, come on. Um, yeah. I understand. I think most of them was like 14 out of 17 hijackers were from uh, Saudi Arabia. There's no punishment there. Right. A lot of military connections are. For such a high profile event in American history. It's it's never stops to fascinate me how much we don't know or don't generally pay attention to when it comes to it. So next up, we've got Ion 2020 from the brains of Ion the Empire, where they're taking a look at the 2020 election. And as much as most of what's going on makes me want to puke my guts out, let's hear what my brand has to say. I think that is amazing. So let me go ahead and talk about one thing today that I wanted to uh, share with you guys. And it's from the Libertarian Party, and it was posted today. Uh, It says, Every day, a host of Democrat contenders for the White House promote their grand new ideas for the federal government. They promise to pay for college education, health insurance for all, universal basic income, and countless other products, or programs, I'm sorry. When pressed on how to pay for them, they often deflect by claiming they'll make the corporations and rich pay their fair share, ignoring the fact that taxing those groups even near 100% wouldn't be enough to fund the government for even a year before their new programs. We see similar things coming from the Trump administration with an entirely different set of partisan spending programs that have led to over $1 trillion in annual deficits. Both the Republicans and Democrats just keep swiping the credit card even though the bank account is empty. This isn't sustainable. We haven't had a balanced budget in almost 20 years. We'll pay more on debt interest next year than all education spending combined. It's irresponsible, and it's condemning our future generations to unimaginable economic hardship. They deserve better. We deserve better. It's time to elect public servants that won't keep kicking the can down the road. It's time to elect libertarians. It's time to elect libertarians. I think that that is completely true. And I don't say libertarians in the big L sense. I say libertarians in the small L sense, right? We need to be electing libertarians, people that have libertarian principles, whether they're Republican, Democrat, or libertarian. But the key is this, guys, thinking about it. We can win big in the Senate and in the House and in the presidency, right? But that's a very unlikely scenario that can happen for the libertarian party. But on the libertarian side... We could win big on the local level. We can win big at the state level. We can run libertarians in these positions. And then that's going to catapult them to the next level. So if we support those libertarians that are running on our local level, at a state level, it's important for them because that's going to be their springboard into the into the big time, right? That's going to be their springboarding to get in into Washington. Washington is controlled... And all of politics in general is controlled by the Republicans and the Democrats. But we do have the ability to get people into office at the local level. And 
you know what? We might even have the ability to get people into office at the at the national level if we just all push forward in that. And you know, you do have like the libertarian leaning people like Thomas Massey. Um, and there, there's a few other Senate, like Rand Paul, like those are people that have won Senate seats and they are libertarian in their, you know, they're Republican in name only in the sense that they are libertarian in most of their views. Now, we always criticize Rand Paul for every stupid thing that he does, but he does way more good than bad. I mean, if he does 98% good and 2% bad, you can't fault him for those 2% bad. Because maybe that's just trying to build some some bridges with another party in some way so we can get other stuff done. Who knows? Obviously, we don't want to compromise our principles, but there is thing, there are things that he does that may, you may not agree with, but you know what? He's there doing it, and uh, you don't know every decision that he has to make on that. But we criticize him so heavily when the reality is, is this guy is Ron Paul's son. Like, he is almost as... Pr- I mean, he is principled in most of his stances if you listen to him talk same thing with like the thomas masseys of the world as well these are principled libertarians that are there as republicans but we can start electing those types of people because what's what we've been doing is not working we have democrats and republicans democrats are going to spend just as much as republicans republicans are going to spend just as much as democrats they're all going to keep on spending we have a one trillion dollar deficit this year one trillion dollars donald trump has done nothing to stop that yet he campaigned on nothing like looking at a little strategy there with ion 2020 so from there we're gonna have ourselves a little look at contra krugman this is a great episode uh bob murphy really gets in the weeds about some of the glad handing that happens with oh you know cafe standards, emission standards, and, you know, businesses trying to make the market more favorable for them in the long run. And by favorable, I mean predictable. So let's see what Bob has to say here. Let's talk now about the cars and the fuel efficiency standards and stuff like that, because this is one of these areas where the, let's say, the free market community, which eh, doesn't quite know how they feel about Trump. I mean, some of them really like him. Some are in between. Some can't stand him. But even the can't stand thems will say, well, on energy, he's actually been pretty good. So here we have Krugman, to the contrary, quite alarmed at Trump energy policy, in particular when it comes to, to these standards. And he's saying that the Trump people are, I guess, pursuing antitrust action against car companies because they want to voluntarily more or less adopt standards that they don't necessarily have to adopt. Bob, this, I think, could be one of these cases. I suspect, as a longtime co-host and listener of Contra Krugman, where Krugman is not telling us the whole story. But you being the energy guy, I'm going to let you tell us if he really is telling us the whole story or not. You know, you're, you're learning, Tom, my young Padawan. That's good. Yes. it's So here, and, and this is not my area of expertise, I actually was on a conference call with some people from the Institute for Energy Research who, you know, this is more their beat, as it were. So I, I'm going to try to summarize the big picture of what was going on here. So during the Obama years, they ratcheted up the the schedule for fuel for cafe standards, you know, corporate average fuel economy. So that's like the, the mileage that new vehicles being rolled out at certain dates, you know, and it's based on like the fleet have to have to um, have to hit. And those projections, you know, they were rising so stringently 
that it was a kind of thing where it was almost like a backdoor forcing car companies to have to introduce electric vehicles. Like that was the only way. And so that's what the A, a in cafe is for average. So it's any particular model. It's fine. You can have a quote gas guzzler on the road as a car company. But then in terms of your fleet, you know, you have to have other models on there that have what much, you know, higher mileage, fuel mileage, fuel economy, so that your average, you know, hits the federal standard. And so it, so some people are saying this is only even physically possible unless a lot of these companies just start introducing electric vehicles, you know, because other, otherwise they're just not going to be able to hit this. It's impossible. And so the car companies went, when, when Trump comes in, they went to him and asked for relief. They said, you know, these standards that are on the books that were passed during the Obama administration that are going to start kicking in that we got to start planning for, these are unrealistic. Can you, can you relax these? And so my understanding is it's sort of like, he did it too much. In other words, he rolled them back so much. Oh, you know what? I even just fell for the, the media's terminology. The administration didn't roll anything back. What they did is they froze the existing standard in place and and didn't and you know postponed indefinitely the planned ratcheting up of the standards in terms of how many miles per gallon do you know do the new cars coming online have to hit on average. Okay, so there was not a rollback, it was just they are. They said we're not going to hold automakers to the increased mileage necessary beyond such and such a year that the Obama administration had, you know, put into the pipeline. So that's what happened. So when you see rollback, that's a misleading term. It's not rollback like in your book. You know what I'm talking about, Tom? I do know what you're yeah. talking about. I, I have a book by that name. I, I know a lot about that intimately. Yes, and so so there's that that element just in terms of the Orwellian framing of all this stuff. And and again, my understanding is the car company went to Trump, the Trump administration and said we need relief. On this, this, this is killing us. And then I think, though, he went too far in the sense that he, what he was going to do, was so anti of the environmentalist agenda that the state of California was saying, "No, we're not going to sit by. We're we're going to do it on our own. We can set whatever standards we want in our state." And then, and there's a an issue here. So I don't want to get into it partly because I don't have the, you know, I don't have enough of the details at my fingertips, and I, I might misstate something. But there's a whole issue about the regulatory authority, and it's, you know, there's the Clean Air Act, and there's all this stuff, and you know, can they re- regulate tailpipe emissions? Because one of the things going on here, folks, remember the cafe standards were instituted in the 1970s in reaction to the OPEC oil embargo, right? So the original rationale for these things, why is it that the federal government needs to force automakers to make cars more fuel efficient than they would be in a market, a free market, is that, oh, because, you know, gasoline is going to become arbitrarily expensive because of our oil addiction. So we need to wean ourselves from reliance on foreign oil. Well, that obviously is no longer an issue since the U.S. is top producer now. And so they just, you know, morphed it onto oh, climate change. That's that's the reason now. Right. So the whole rationale for this program totally changed since it's been around. And so anyway, there's there's disputes over that and issues of federalism and, you know, Congress preempted the state's rights to do it. But then California has been constantly getting waivers, allowing them to have more stringent standards than the federal minimums. So there's all kinds of stuff here that, you know, lawyers can talk about. But the the basic idea about this latest thing the Krugman is saying is California and the Trump administration are locked in battle. And it looks like they it might go to court to settle this to see, you know, can California insist on higher standards than everyone else? And so some of the car companies are saying, we, we can't plan, we can't do business in this environment if we don't know what the relevant regulation is going to be for cars we sell in California five years from now. How can we do business? So let's just separately go to California and get some get some closure. Okay, so, th- so that's w- what's going on there. And, you know, so even on its own terms, it's, a, it's Krugman's making it sound like the car companies are just responsible stewards of the environment, which is interesting because it's like whenever, a, you know, a company does something 
for the bottom line that's against the environment, you know, then crew, oh yeah, that's just because they're self-seeking business that just, you know, they don't care. And then when they do something else, all of a sudden, oh, the shareholders and the CEO magically turn into progressive heroes that, you know, that's interesting that, and so in this case, I think it has more to do with, um, you know, yeah, they want some regulatory certainty, but also by cutting a deal and locking this in, the bigger car companies can better comply with these regulations. And so that keeps out cheaper, you know, competitors from undercutting them. Right, so I think that's partly what's going on because if you think about it, I hate cutting Bob Murphy off, but he keeps going and it's all so good. And if I didn't cut it off there, it was going to become like another hour, you know, because that's how that works. So anyways, folks, I hope you've had another great episode of this week in Liverpods. And as always, go out, like, subscribe, share, tell other people, because I really want to make sure that everyone has the opportunity to find new podcasts that they can fall in love with. Find the voices that speak right to them. So go sign up for the mailing list over at liverpods.com. Look us up on Facebook and Twitter because I do those sort of things sometimes. On Twitter, I just like to fuck with people. I probably shouldn't have swore there, but it's me, so I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Like I said, liberpods.com. Go sign up for the mailing list. If there's a podcast you think I need to have on here, please let me know because there's so many of them and I want to help everyone out and get everyone hearing them. I think we're up to what, we've done nine episodes, so what, 45 podcasts we've highlighted and I know there's so many more to get to. Let's help share your favorite with everybody else. So have a good one, guys. Peace.